2 Corinthians tonight. Uh, there's a handout on the back. It's not as fancy as some of the guys gave you, but that's what you get from me. So I'm not as fancy as some of the other teachers. So, Lee, do you want to open us in prayer tonight? Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this chance to once again pause in our days and and uh, benefit from what Joel has studied and how you have uh, helped him to understand this book in a much deeper way. Help us to absorb as much as we can so that when we look at this book, we have a better idea of its message and its purpose and how it fits into all the rest of the scriptures. So bless him as he teaches us. Open our ears to hear. Thanks again for walking through this with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to try and talk really fast. I have 22 pages, so hopefully we can get through all that. I don't know how many pages the other guys usually get through. Um, I'm going to try three. Oh, man. Three, three. I'm going to try and include some questions and a little discussion. Um, try and keep it brief on your rabbit trails so that we have time to do my rabbit trails. So. Um, I'll, I'll ask for some readers. There are several passages, most of which are in this book of 2 Corinthians. So if there's several of you that want to be turned to 2 Corinthians and read for us, that'd be great. Um, is everybody get a handout? They're on the back there. Is there enough, Chuck? Uh, yeah, so far I Okay. Uh, if you look at the top there, it says 2 Corinthians with a question mark. How many of you think this is actually the book of 2 Corinthians? Nobody. Wow. Wow. You're all very smart. Chuck thinks it is? I doubt that. <laughs> all right. The title, 2 Corinthians, is debatable because we don't believe it is actually the second book of Corinthians. Uh, so we'll discuss that a little later. So the author, uh, we believe to be Paul. There's no real doubt or disputes on that, that the author is Paul. Nobody really contests it. Um, it is mere, there's more autobiographical than any of his other epistles. It reveals the heart and the emotions of Paul more than any of his other books. Uh, if you remember from last week that Wes was up here doing 1 Corinthians, he told us that Paul is continuously putting himself aside to give the glory to God and not to himself. Um, even though there is a lot of boasting in this book, we're going to see that concept still, even in this book, as Paul does his boasting throughout. So I'll try and go through some of those later on, but there's so many references to his boasting, we don't have enough time to cover it all. So um, with all these references about Paul, it gives us a, a bigger picture of him, but it does provide us some difficulty in terms of understanding the book and the interpretation of the book. Um, I filled in a bunch of that information for you in the beginning there. I tried to save you enough time, enough space for the outline on the second page. If you need to, you can use the back page. So It's not the authenticity or authorship that is attacked about 2 Corinthians, but the unity of it. Uh, the most common view in Christendom has always held that 2 Corinthians was one book. Uh, not until the last two, three hundred years has there been a tax on that. Um, a lot of saying that the last four chapters, 10 through 13, might possibly have been from the severe letter, which we'll talk about that as well, or that they may have combined parts that they just found and just kind of neatly put it together to make one nice little canonical book for us. Um, we'll talk about that as well. 
The date for writing it is guesstimated between 55 AD and 57 AD. He wrote the letter from Macedonia. Uh, we don't know exactly where in Macedonia. We kind of think it's Philippi, could be Thessalonica, I'm not sure. Um, it was after his departure from Ephesus on his way into Macedonia and Achaia. So the purpose you have written, uh, one predominant purpose is to reestablish his <coughs> apostolic authority in the Corinthian church. Okay. Um, before getting into our outline that you have on the second page, I'm going to try and go through a lengthy background of the church in Corinth. Um, not all of it is gospel proof, and I'm not willing to die on some of these hills. So keep that in mind with all your little headings that you have there. Um, none of it is nearly an arbitrary guess without any evidence. Okay. So a lot of this we do have evidence for, and I'll try to cite those references for you as we go along. Um, if I miss one, you can ask me later, and I'll tell you where I got it. So um, pretty much all this is derived from Scripture, even if we cannot prove exactly that these things happened or when they happened. But we'll try and go into that a little bit as well. Um, Last week, Wes pretty much covered, I think, the history of Corinth for us pretty good. So I'm going to completely blow that off and not talk about that. Uh, we're just going to look at the history of the Corinthian church itself tonight. Okay? So we'll start out here. Paul founded the Corinthian church on a second missionary journey. He stays for about 18 months. He meets Priscilla and Aquila there and works with them since they are tent makers or leather workers, as Lee informed us about a few, when was that, three or four weeks ago? You talked about Paul. Um, he stays with them, and then he takes them with him when he leaves Corinth and returns to Ephesus. He returns, or he leaves them there and continues on in Acts 18. Chuck, can you turn the heat down maybe just a little? I'm getting blasted up here with heat. Are you too? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's I'm, a little I'm warm. Hell, I'm warm, yeah. It's a little warm up here. <laughs> so, okay. Moving on. Sometime after that, Paul ministered to them. There's some immorality arose in the church. So Paul wrote to them a letter, which is referred to in 1 Corinthians 5.9. This is what we know as the lost letter. Okay. If you remember from last week, Wes repeatedly said the first canonical book of Corinthians. You remember him saying that? Yep. Every time he said it, first canonical book of Corinthians. The meaning for that is that the first one in our New Testament, as you guys already know apparently, was not the first one in number, but the first one in our canon. Okay? Um, we do not have that letter or that book, hence the name, Lost Letter. Um, we don't know why God did not keep it around or preserve it for us to be read. Apparently, he didn't think we needed to know. So that's about all I can say about that. Um, meanwhile, while Apollos comes on the scene in Ephesus in Acts 18.24, uh, probably before Paul returned from after he left Aquila and Priscilla there, and uh, about Apollos, he was said to be an eloquent man, confident, in the scriptures and fervent in spirit. So what does eloquent mean? Spoke well. Say that again? Spoke well. Spoke well? Did you have something, Joe? No. Anybody else? That you spoke well or that you have a way with words, some would say. 
But it doesn't matter if you know what to say or have a way with words if you don't know what to say, right? So it says in Acts 18.25, he spoke accurately of Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay? So Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and explained the gospel more thoroughly to them, to him. Afterwards, he wished to go to Corinth and preach the good news, possibly to help explain some things they didn't understand from the lost letter. Reference to that is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. We use that reference a lot. Um, as you recall, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that he came to them in fear and trembling, deciding to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified with no lofty speech or wisdom. Okay? That is not to say that Paul preached an inaccurate or incomplete gospel to them. Okay? He did. However, the eloquent, competent, instructed Apollos came. He greatly helped the church and powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate. And apparently I left off the reference for that, so come to me afterwards and I'll find it for you. Um, upon hearing this powerful, persuasive Punyan Apollos, it's easy to see how he gained a following um, who were loyal to his teaching when the divisions developed that were mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Is that factions, Chuck, or fractions? I'm sorry, I'm dead again. Is that the factions or fractions of 1 Corinthians? Factions. Factions? Okay. I want to make sure I got that right since we talked about that. The factions that developed in 1 Corinthians. You guys remember those, right? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. Factions. Okay. So after Paul returns to Ephesus, he spends the better part of three years there ministering. And we see that in Acts 20.31. During this time, Apollos returns, as well as more reports of immorality and division in the church that we just mentioned. So Paul sends Timothy, 1 Corinthians 4.17, possibly with the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, to confront them while he remains in Ephesus a little longer. Okay? Um, the epistle we know to be 1 Corinthians, actually 2 Corinthians. Okay? It appears to, in part, at least answer some of their questions and their incorrect understanding of the lost letter. Again, reference 1 Corinthians 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 7. It also is in response to the reports received from Chloe's household that we saw in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Um, I believe this was after Paul and Apollos returned to Ephesus because Paul strongly urges him to go with the brothers to Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians 16.12. Uh, Paul must have known that for, he was an eloquent, persuasive teacher. By the way, they're following you as well, so go there and help straighten this out, would you? And Paulus refuses and says he will go later. So, if I could get, like I said, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 16, 12 that he talks about that. If you want to look that up and get a little more about it. So Paul sends this letter with uh, not knowing the full extent or the severity of the trouble in Corinth. As evidenced by sending timid Timothy. I'm just giving him that nickname. You don't have to. And his use of language in 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11. Um, when Paul receives more news about the situation, either from Timothy's return or from some other source, uh, he immediately comes to them to give a stern rebuke. Okay? This visit is referenced for us in 2 Corinthians 2.1. This is what we call the second visit, um, where Paul says he made up his mind in 2 Corinthians not to make another painful visit to you implying that he visited them on a separate time 
than the first time when he founded the church, which probably would have been a joyful time and not a painful time. Um, also in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he mentions his next visit will be his third visit to them, implying there was a second. So we don't know exactly when the second visit was. Commentators have placed it in different places for different reasons. And I'm not going to go into all that right now because I don't think we have time. So it would appear, however, the second visit was not a success um, and painful for Paul as he returned to Ephesus, having not been very forceful or successful. Um, after returning, it is believed that he writes another letter that we'll call the severe letter. And that's referenced 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 4. He sends this letter with Titus immediately to go to Corinth to try and straighten out what's going on there. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So some commentators says there is no severe letter, but that 2 Corinthians is the letter that he sent with Titus. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because in this letter he references Titus's report and Titus coming back to him and saying how things went with that letter. So that's kind of doubtful. Um, there has to be some sort of other correspondence in there where Titus went to them and spoke to them about what's going on because of all the things we'll see later about Titus's report and what happened when he went there. So uh, sometime around this same time, Paul resolves in the spirit whether that's Holy Spirit or His Spirit, we don't know. To This is Acts 19, 21, by the way. To go through Macedonia and Achaia and then on to Jerusalem. Uh, before he leaves, however, there was a riot started by Demetrius. You guys all probably remember Demetrius. He was the maker of the idols. And he was angry at Paul for basically chopping into his business. And this is Acts 19, 21 through 41. Uh, when that's all over and done with, as you can read in Acts, Paul says, I'm out of here, enough of this. He bids him goodbye, heads for Troas, in hopes of meeting up with Titus to see how they took the severe letter and how they handled Titus. Um, so when he gets to Troas, he decides to preach and wait for Titus, which is typical Paul. That's what he does wherever he goes. Just, hey, I'm here, I'll preach. So that's what he does, and the Lord opens the door for him in preaching there. However, he's so bothered in his spirit about how the Corinthians received that letter in Titus, he can't hang out. He's just so restless, I, I gotta know, I gotta find out. So he takes off, and he leaves in the direction that he knows that Titus is coming from, which is Macedonia. So he meets up with uh, Titus in Mac Macedonia, and now we enter stage right, or stage right, this is where we pick up 2 Corinthians, okay? Or the book we know as 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes this last letter, probably from Philippi, and to prepare them for his third visit as he's making his way through Macedonia on his way to Achaia, okay? So then he arrives in Corinth, and by all guesses, we believe that to be successful. He stays three months and writes the book of Romans. That's it for that. Any questions about that? Clear's mud? Must be. Okay. So now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> if you remember where that came from. <laughs> yes, fall every. So that's, all right. Now we're going to build a short outline for a short book. Okay? So you can skip to your, turn to your next page. <clears throat> the entire book is divided into three clear sections, even though we have 13 chapters. So I made three nice little points there for you. 
Um, we're going to overview our three main points real quick and then just slowly, hopefully quickly, make our way through the book. So point number one, Paul's explanation and defense of his ministry. And that's chapters one through seven. Um, as he goes through this section, he seems to kind of fluidly weave in and around through the topics and the chapters. There isn't any real great distinction from, okay, done with this chapter, onto this topic, done with this topic, onto this chapter. He kind of just flows through, and even though we're starting a new chapter, we see he's still kind of talking about what he was talking about back there. So, and then point two is Paul's collection for the saints, chapters eight and nine. Uh, we reference back to 1 Corinthians 16 for Paul's original directions for the benevolent offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And here he's going to expand on that and talk about it a lot more because he's going to take two chapters. So, uh, And then number three, we have Paul's defense of his apostleship, chapters 10 through 13. This, unlike the first section, we have a huge break. We have a huge turnaround here. Um, this is what causes all the commentators such consternation and problems because there's such a huge about face from the end of chapter 9 to the beginning of chapter 10. And that's what causes everybody to say these can't be part of the same letter. And hopefully you'll see that as we go along. So, um, yeah, we'll highlight some of that when we get there, hopefully. So let's start off chapter 1. Um, we'll go, everybody turn to 1 Corinthians 1 if you're not there already. Uh, we'll have a reader read 2 Corinthians. What did I say? Oh, sorry. Go to 2 Corinthians. You might find it more helpful. <laughs> so I'll start off 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, after the intro and the greeting, Paul jumps right in to speak about his sufferings. If somebody can read chapter 1, verse 3 through 7 for us. Joe. Okay. Blessed be the God and Father of our <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. <clears throat> if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Thank you. So he starts out, as we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also share abundantly in his comfort as well. Pretty easy, right? Um, then he goes on and says that his suffering here is not on his own accord. It is not for anything he's done. It is not that he's working to advance his own agenda or peddling the word of God for profit, as others are doing that we'll see later on. He and his companions are suffering for the gospel of Christ. The proof that he is doing the gospel of Christ is that he is suffering as, a, as an apostle. <clears throat> so that's uh, reference 1 Cor 4, 8 through 13, if you want to write down down. Um, he is suffering in afflictions so as to be a minister of grace to others in affliction and suffering. Not just because this was his lot in life or this was the hand he was dealt, but in order so that he can minister to others. So now we'll move on to uh, verses 16 through 19. If I have a volunteer who wants to read that, or a victim who wants to read that. I can read it. 
Lori. Oh. All right, you'll be next, Jesse. <laughs> You said chapter one. Chapter one, 16 through 19, yes. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say my yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. How far? Through 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. It is always yes. Thank you. So Paul's going to change the topic a little bit here and defend his ministry and his change of plans. Um, when he did not visit them as he said he would in 1 Corinthians 16, you remember his his, uh, he announced his plans to visit them? The false apostles, or as I'm going to dub them, the super A's, because it's just easier for me to say, and I have to say that a lot, we're going to call them super A's. These false apostles in Corinth jumped in on this opportunity to attack the credibility of Paul, to attack his competence and trustworthiness, and also credibility. Uh, they're doing this to gain a following in the church, and in order to do this, they have to demolish Paul's, uh, the Corinthian loyalty to Paul. Uh, we don't know exactly when this scheduled visit was, probably after his second visit, in which things did not go so well. Um, we'll probably see that here in a minute when we read chapter 123 through chapter 22, Jesse. Okay. His next argument was to give the reason for not visiting them. Go ahead, Jesse. Okay. But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Okay, thank you. So his next argument for, and reason for not visiting them, it's not because he's vacillating, it's not because he's flaky or uncredible or untrustworthy. It was to spare them the harsh discipline that he told them he was going to bring to them. Okay? Um, it was to give them more time to repent and turn back, which is why we kind of think it was after his second visit that did not go so well. So I had a whole bunch more I wanted to say about that. Um, yeah, why not? Uh, he didn't want to lord his authority over them, uh, verse 24. Uh, he wanted to work with them. And not just, you know, bring the hammer down on him. He was reluctant to use his authority against them uh, for disciplinary reasons. Um, we'll see in chapter 10, verse 8, and chapter 13, verse 10, that he's, he's not one to just come after him right away for discipline. He wants to give them time and be patient with them. Okay? Um, I think this sets an example for us today in the church, not to rush in and just throw the book at people, not the Bible, but to throw the book at people when we see something going on in their lives or some, some sinful issue, um, I think as the elders can attest in this church, it's a lengthy process. It takes time, weeks, if not months, maybe even no longer. So we don't want to just run into that. So all that I say is that Paul is willing to change his plans and be undercut by false apostles just to give them more time to repent. So... Let's move on to chapter 3, 
Um, before I do that, though, we need to back up just a hair and read chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. So if we have a volunteer that could read that for us. Gary. Okay. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death, to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you want 17 too? Yes. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Okay. So some say this is where he really gets going with the defense of his ministry. Um, he says in verse 17, we are the real deal. We are not like the super A's. Remember that term, super A's. Uh, we are in this for the long haul. We are commissioned by God to speak in Christ, okay? We're not here peddling for money, or our ministry is true and legitimate, okay? So now we can move on to chapter 3, verse 1. I'll just read that. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. I guess I read two, but oh well. Um, so with all that, he says, do we need to prove again who we are to you? Do I need to come introduce myself? In the Greek, that word commend, I believe, is meaning introduce. So he's saying, do we need to introduce ourselves again to you? He's already given them proof, you know, that he is the apostle. And a, a real, legitimate apostle, okay? Uh, the super A's were demanding proof of his credibility, trying to persuade the Corinthians of his hypocrisy, since he did not provide a letter of validation from the Jerusalem church or from the other churches. Paul has already addressed this once. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 9.2, he is telling them of his proof of his apostleship. So he says here, I do not need to introduce myself to you again as a real apostle. I've already done that once, okay? Um, we do see this sometimes in some other places in the, in the scripture. In Acts 18, the brothers in Ephesus wrote about Apollos and sent the letter with him to Corinth so that the disciples there would welcome him and accept him as a teacher that was accredited by them. Um, I think we all know why that was done. We still do that today, right? In our churches, we don't just let anybody come in off the street, or even people who are attending just come in and teach. We want them to be vetted and to know what they're teaching is truth. So, all right, getting back to Paul, verse 2 here. He says, you are a letter. You are the proof that I am the real deal. He says, the fact that there even is a church in Corinth of Jesus Christ is because I was there and I founded the church. So why do I need to give you another letter proving who I am when you should know you are my letter, okay? Um, let's move on to chapter 3, verse 15 through 18. Somebody wants to read that for us. No one? Okay. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay? 
So, moving on, um, in verse 6 of that same chapter, he says, he starts by saying that we are ministers of the new covenant that brings life through the Spirit, and that the Lord is the Spirit, and only by turning to the Spirit is this veil removed. So, if we go back to verse 18, it says, with unveiled face, what does that mean? And be quick, or you're going to be here all night. <laughs> Is that a reference to Moses' veil? <clears throat> no, not exactly. Where would verse you in? Chapter 3, verse 18. Three. Says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. What's he referring to there? Regeneration. Say that again? Regeneration. Regeneration, right. Okay. And just before that, he says, and we all. So who are the we? Believers. You louder, Mark. Oh, believers. Yes, believers. Yeah. That's right. So we all, the believers, with unveiled face, those who are regenerated, those who are believers in Christ, right? Okay, are beholding the glory of God. Okay. Meaning those who understand the gospel, those who are in this new covenant, who by the Spirit have biblical truth illuminated to us so we may see and understand the things of God, right? Okay, so now that the veil is removed from our eyes so we may see and understand the glory of Jesus Christ, we can see his attributes and understand them a little more clearly, such as his holiness and his love and his justice and how utterly unlike us he is. So what is this veil then? I had a reference here, but I think we better skip it and just move on to chapter 4 verse 3 and 4, and we're going to look a little bit at this veil. Somebody want to read 4, 3 verse, uh, Tim? 4, four and 5. Uh, three through, chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Okay, thank you. So the same veil is what prevents unbelievers from understanding the glory and the mystery of the gospel. Um, I think we can all attest that we've heard people use language like, I came to God, or I found Jesus, or I found God, or something similar to that. Um, none of us comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him, right? You look at John 6, it tells us that. Um, they are prevented from seeing Jesus, who is the image of God, by the God of this world, Satan. You've all, you've all know when it says the God of this world, we're referencing Satan here. Um, there are several other passages you could turn to where it calls him the God of this world or the power of the prince of the air. So it's not talking about God in terms of the almighty holy God. It's the God of this world who is Satan. Um, so... We'll back up a little bit um, to 3.18, and it says uh, that we're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory into another. When we say that we're being, being transformed into the image of God, what are we talking about there? Do our faces resemble that same famous picture of Jesus that we've all seen over and over again. What are we talking about here? Sanctification. Sanctification, right on. Very good. We are being transformed in the image of God. It has nothing to do with our physical appearance. 
And if you want a reference for that, like a Romans 8, 29, 30, I'm not going to read it because time's moving really fast. Um, so we'll just move on to uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. If I have another victim, I mean volunteer, who wants to read that for us. Lee. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Okay. So this mystery of the gospel, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, is treasure that we carry around in jars of clays. Jars of clay. This jar of clay is a reference to our physical, mortal, corruptible human bodies. Okay. Uh, we'll see that reference again later in chapter 5, verse 1. He calls it a tent. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, both of these, though, are temporary, disposable, breakable, degrading vessels that are not meant to last a very long time. And we're not meant to stay like this forever. Thank God. <laughs> Paul frequently uh, talks of his trials and hardships, as he did in chapter 1, and he's also going to do in chapter 6, uh, he emphasizes here he's been treated as this common household expendable clay pot. Okay? Uh, the reason for that is to show God's power. Okay? And that, he, that it was God's power that had persuaded them to the gospel. Not anything he has done or not because of who he is. Okay? God's power is what has accomplished everything through his life. Because clearly he couldn't even take care of himself enough to keep him out of troubles and trials and all kinds of bad stuff that happened to him. So clearly it wasn't the power in him accomplishing any of this. Um, if we go on, we'll talk about some of these lists. We have several lists in this book of uh, paradoxes and parallelisms, and they're, they're really kind of fun to read. They just roll off the tongue. It helps you remember what was said a little easier. It helps to drive his point home a little more. Um, if we look at chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, I'll read it for you. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So you can kind of see how these aid a little bit um, in memorization. Uh, they show all the hardships that he has endured in his life that he could not take credit for. I mean, they show the power of God. It is not him enduring all this on his own strength. Um, so remember, this is still his defense of his ministry and explanation of it. So he's repeatedly given proof through this that God is in work in his ministry by way of his suffering, as we saw back in chapter 1, through the power of Christ. These sufferings are greater than any man could bear in the flesh. And that's why he has the power of God to help him endure this. This isn't something he can do on his own. So speaking of the flesh and the hopelessness we have in it, Let's go on to verse 16 through 18 of chapter 4. Chuck, thank you. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Thank you. 
So this is a great reminder to us, uh, especially to some of us more than others, as our physical bodies are degrading and falling apart and wasting away, that... I can't really. <laughs> What's that, Chuck? I can't relate. You can't relate to that? Okay, well, for the, for the rest of some of us, not Chuck, our physical body is breaking down and wearing out. That doesn't matter because we don't lose heart. This isn't our permanent dwelling, like we've talked about already, and like he'll tell us again in chapter 5, okay? Um, as our soul is growing more and more like Christ every day. So, now we're going to go to chapter 5, which I've already mentioned several times. And I want to just give us a real quick summary. So just look at, your, look at chapter 5 and just follow along with me as I spout this off for you, okay? And there is a reason for it, I promise. And he's not only defending in this chapter his life and describing his life, but also the life of what the Corinthians should be, and also our lives as well as believers, okay? So we start off, when we die and are separated from our tents, we have a house with God that is in the heavens and is eternal. Verse 1. We long to be in heaven. Verse 2. He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. Verse 5. We walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 7. I'll tell you the verse first so that might help you. Verse 9. We would rather be with Christ and make it our aim to please him wherever we are. Verse 11. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, and what we are is known to God. Isn't that great, that little line there? What we are is known to God. It doesn't matter what others say about us, right? It doesn't matter what people accuse us of. God knows who we are. The Lord knows who are His, right? So going on to verse 15, we have died to ourselves and live for the sake of the one who died for us. Verse 17, we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled himself to us. That's another great point. All this is from God. It is not the people who say, I found God, I found Jesus, I did this, I did, no. All this is from God, not from ourselves. Then verses 19 through 20, we are ambassadors for Christ with the ministry of reconciliation. So now I ask you, are these things true in your life? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, they should be, right? So now we get to the end of this chapter. I purposely saved verse 21. That's the climax of the chapter and the verse that makes all this other stuff possible, right? Uh, if you were here on Sunday, remember Josh mentioned this verse in his sermon last week. I wanted to go back and try and listen to it again so I could hear what he had to say, but I didn't get that far. So you just have to listen to me. Um, some men have preached entire sermons on this one verse, and rightfully so. Uh, from me tonight, you'll get one paragraph. I'm sorry. Um, it boils down the heart of the gospel into two phrases for us, okay? Uh, are we all familiar with the term double imputation? I think we are, right? right? I was going to say, okay, good, I'll move on now, but maybe I should actually go on and explain a little bit of this. Um, I'll give you, I'll, I'll try to choose my terminology carefully here. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from Alfred Plummer. He says, in some sense which we cannot fathom, God is said to have identified Christ with man's sin in order that man might be identified with God's own righteousness. Okay, that kind of sound similar, only in somebody else's paraphrase. So to start off with, God imputes our sin onto Jesus, 
the one who has absolutely no association with sin, the one who has never sinned. This doesn't mean that Jesus is now sinful or that he has ever committed a sin, but that he was declared to be sinful or to be sin, as it says here, in our place. Likewise, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. This doesn't mean that we are instantly perfectly righteous as Christ is, or that we no longer sin, okay? We are declared to be righteous and then declared justified in God's holy court because Christ's righteousness is applied to our account. Sound good to you? I think so. Um, we could go on and just say lots more about that, but I think I, well, I better keep moving. Um, we're going to touch briefly on a few points in chapter 6 now. Um, let's see. It's for, uh, I was going to note here that almost through all this whole section, he uses the first person plural, use, using we. When he says that, mostly he's referring to him and his companions. However, that we can also be translated over into us as well as believers. Um, you'll see the change when we get to verse chapter 10. Hopefully we'll get there. And he says, I. He changes it up. It's not just me and Timothy and Sylvanus. And it is I. I'm telling you this directly. Okay? But keep in mind, for almost all the ones that we see, when he says we, you can insert yourself there unless he's talking about a specific example or something that happened, like uh, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says the affliction we experienced in Asia. Obviously, he's not talking about us here in this room or in chapter 8, verse 1. So there's a few instances where you can look at it and say, okay, that's, that actually happened there to those people. But for the most part, when he says we, he's referring to believers, even though he's generally speaking of him and his companions that are writing this letter. Okay? So in this section, uh, Paul calls us a new creation, ambassadors for Christ, and servants for God. Okay? Um, in these roles, we're working together with Christ, chapter 6, verse 1. And as God makes his appeal through us, chapter 5, verse 20, and then he continues in chapter 6 by saying, now is the time for these God-given roles. Now is the time for salvation. And that time is still now, even though he wrote this way back then. That time is still now. We still insert the we in there to mean us. Okay? Now is the time for the ministry of reconciliation. So I'll move on to chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. Unless somebody wants to read that one. Travis. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and truth. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Okay, so in verse 4, he starts it off uh, saying, this is how servants of God are introduced, or how they become known as servants of God. 
Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of those lists that he that he does that he uses in this book that helps you to get a, a glimpse of it. It also gives us a really full color picture of his life um, and the circumstances for the life of a minister of the gospel. Um, he's saying, at least in part, some of these things should be characteristic of you guys as well, not just me as Paul the Apostle. Um, and again, that should probably be true of us here in this room as well, as believers in Christ. Okay. So um, I was going to go into the list, but I don't think I can because we're going <coughs> to time. And it's mostly self-explanatory anyway. If you want, we can talk about it later on afterwards. Um, so we'll just move on to uh, 11 through 13. Uh, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children. Widen your hearts also. All right, so this is the beginning of his appeal to them to renew their rapport for their reconciliation, okay? Let me put this in the Joe paraphrase for you real quick and see if that helps you to understand this verse a little bit. So he says, I have been completely open and honest with you and have shared with you everything in my heart. I'm putting no limits on our relationship or on the love I have for you. However, you won't even return my email with a complete response. Does that make sense? Does that make it a little clearer? No? Clear as mud? No, it does. I think it okay. talks about being, he's really sharing his heart. He is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, laid, he's saying, this is how it is. We laid this out for you. And this whole chapter here, this is the way it is, guys. Okay? This, we commend ourselves in the servants of God with all these things. This whole list of things. All the bad stuff, all the good stuff, all the things that are happening. This is the way, this is what it's like to be a minister of the gospel. Saying, we're being open with you guys about this. We're not hiding anything. Okay? And in return... You should be open and honest with us as well, and show your hearts to us as well, okay? Um, then he wraps it up in chapter 7, verse 2 through 4. Uh, he says, we have acted only in your best interests and for your good, because we genuinely care about you in our hearts. Now that we have reconciled, do likewise for us. Do the same, okay? Now that we are reconciled together, you need to open your hearts to us as we have done for you, Okay? Maybe that helps a little more to clear up some mud. Um, now we'll drop into verse 5 of chapter 7. Um, if you wanted to, you could go back to chapter 2, verse 13, and just pick it up right here. Almost as if these last four or five chapters were just kind of inserted there, and Paul kind of went off on a tangent, sort of, and then, oh yeah, now let me pick up this story here. I'm not saying that's what he did, so don't, don't get me wrong. Um, these are the verses that we draw a lot of our background story from and the, the circumstances for writing this letter. Uh, this is the account of Titus's report of the severe letter and how the Corinthians responded to that letter. Uh, we read in chapter 2 how Paul was distressed about the outcome of the visit and how his departure probably a little prematurely placed his arrival in Troas a little early. And so this is basically, he picks up with what happened after he talks to Titus and Troas and the report that he gets from Titus, okay? So I'm going to move on to verses 9 through 11. I'm trying to speed it up because I think I'm going too slow. Sorry. Um, we see their response was a, 
there is a godly grief to repentance. Uh, he also gives two kinds of grief here, godly and worldly. And I think we need to take care to notice these and to notice what is involved in each and where they lead to. Okay? Um, if we look at the, the first one he mentions, the godly grief, which produces salvation first, but also an eagerness to rectify the situation and make things right, in addition to indign indignation of what is wrong. Okay? It's not just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we're good. Okay? They had an eagerness to rectify the wrongs and to fix the situation and to make amends for it. Okay? Um, we can see an example of this in Peter after he betrayed Jesus. The godly sorrow that, read, that leads to repentance. And then we can also see examples on the reverse side of the uh, worldly grief that produces death. Uh, if we think of Cain or Esau or especially Judas, those are the examples of they were sorrowful. They felt bad about it. But did it lead them to repentance? No, it did not. Okay? Um, so in verse 11, uh, it kind of doesn't wrap it up, but he's saying in every point they have proved that their grief was godly. Okay? If we read that, let's see. Right towards the end there, it says at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. They didn't just say, okay, I'm sorry, Paul, we're reconciled. No, they did every, all, if you go through all the things he says there, the eagerness to clear yourselves. They went through the whole process here. It wasn't just an I'm sorry and they quickly moved on. Okay? All right, so now we're going to enter point two really fast in your outlines, which is chapters eight and nine. Uh, we'll see Paul tries to sound confident and secure in their newly reconciled relationship. Um, but as we we'll go through this, we kind of see his little hints here and there that he drops in of distrust, that he doesn't quite fully believe that he's reconciled completely. Um, so after he's just basically been at odds with them, now he's saying we're reconciled. So he starts off this chapter. Um, let's, let me put the question to you. Would you feel comfortable asking for someone, asking for money from someone with whom you just had a big fight? No. No. Lori says no. Anybody else feel okay with that? Joe, you'd be okay with that? Well, that's be asking for money? No. Probably wouldn't be okay with that. Okay. Probably not. Okay. Well, that's essentially what Paul's doing here. Yeah, but he says here they, they repented. Yeah, right. So you wipe it clean, and you, yeah. Yeah, yeah so we're moving on. Move on. Right. That's basically what Paul's going to do here now in chapter 8. Now that we've repented, let's move on. Okay? So he's, he's demonstrating his restored relationship by asking for this proof of them and their rest restoration to him. Does that make sense, or did I say that wrong? He's asking for them to give the proof that they are reconciled and restored to him by making this request of them. Okay? Uh, he begins in mentioning the churches in Macedonia, how they've given, been extremely generous and given out of their affliction and poverty. And then he goes on as if goading them, they should do the same. So we'll pick it up in chapter 8, verse 7 through 8. And I'll just read it. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all circumstances, and in your love, and in our love, for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he kind of says all that to goad them into, you know, you need to be giving 
too and doing the same. And then he tells them to do the same. But right after that, he says, oh, this isn't a command. Okay? Um, we don't see commands in the New Testament on giving and you should give such and such and here and there and you should tithe this and that. We don't see that in the New Testament. Um, instead, he gives us an example of what Jesus did for us. Okay? Uh, he says, your Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might by his poverty become rich. Okay? So just as in everything else, Christ is our model that we strive to imitate. Okay? Um, he does, however, <coughs> give some instructions for giving in the New Testament. Not, not necessarily Paul, but in 1 Corinthians, or Timothy 6.18, Corinthians 9, and also here. Um, we could note here that the Macedonians gave out of their own accord. It wasn't commanded or demanded of them. But their earnestness and their joy was a testimony to the Corinthians and to us that this is how we prove our love for each other. This is one way of showing it, like he says in verse 8. The others that you that your love also is genuine. Okay? Um, so we'll jump ahead to chapter 9. He continues on by saying it is superfluous, meaning not necessary, to remind you about this gift for the saints. And then he goes on to remind them. And also, not only does that, he sends the brothers with Titus to make sure that the gift is ready. After he just said, I have complete confidence in you. Now, he's going to do that. Do you get the feeling maybe he doesn't quite trust them completely? Accountability is a good thing. It is, yes. Mm -hmm. just um, trust so, and verify. What? Trust, trust and verify? verify. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So then move on in chapter, or chapter 9, verse 3 through 5. Uh, we can still detect that little bit of you know, mistrust in there when he's saying, I'm going to send the brothers just to kind of make sure that you guys follow through with this, okay? Or that could be full confidence and trust on the other side. Could be, <clears throat> could be full confidence and trust knowing that they are truly repentant and so... Mm -hmm. He, he knows that it won't be a wasted trip for him. Mm -hmm. He says that actually later on yeah, yeah. about uh, Titus. He says that we boasted to Titus of our confidence in you. Yeah. See if I can find that. That's why we sent ushers around. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have full confidence. Because we have full confidence. <laughs> yeah. yep. All right, if you go back real quick to chapter 7, I believe it's verse 13. Besides our comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about him, or I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. It's like you're saying. So, all right. Uh, let's go on to chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a continuation of chapter 8, verse 18, where he says this is a benefit for you. So he uses this um, opportunity, I guess you could say, to teach them a valuable point that we've all heard hundreds of times, I'm sure. Uh, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, so we've all heard that, right? I'm sure we have. My question for you guys, and please be quick because we're really burning through time. Um, do we arbitrarily pick a number of how much to give? And if not, what criteria should we use for, as the phrase, give as he has decided in his heart? What criteria do we use for determining how to, or if you, I guess only answer it if you do give. If you don't give, then it probably doesn't apply to you. But if you do give, what criteria do you use? I think all giving should be uh, prayerfully considered. Mm -hmm. And I think it's wise for a man also to counsel with his wife as she's his helpmate and mm -hmm. she could also prayerfully consider. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? Well, it says we're supposed to give as we are prospered. Yep. So that means if you're, you know, if you get a raise, you should give extra, you know, give more mm -hmm. of that. And one thing that I think is really important is that, and I think it's somewhere in Corinthians that says, I can't remember, but um, you are supposed, you, if God has blessed you with material riches, it's so that you can help others. It's not so that you're supposed to revel in your richness or buy all this stuff, but it's so that you can help others, mm -hmm. especially in the body. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me run through these references real quick. Um, I was hoping to have a couple people read a few of them, but I think I'll just tell them to you. Um, if we jump back to chapter 8, verse 3, he says, give according to your means. Um, if we go to chapter 8, verse 12, give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6, give abundantly, not sparingly. Chapter 9, verse 10, the more you give, the more it will increase your harvest of righteousness. Uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, uh, don't allow yourself to accumulate treasures or wealth so that your heart's treasure may be in the right place. Um, I had a little side note. The amount that you, the amount that corrupts the heart is different for every person, Okay. The point here is not to accumulate wealth to the point where it becomes your heart's treasure. Okay? Does that mean there's an automatically, if you have 100000 in your bank, you should not keep another dime? No, that's not what we're saying here. Okay? That amount to where that corrupts your heart is different in every person's heart. Okay? So keep whatever amount you have low enough to the point where money does not become your treasure. Right? Okay. Joe, can, can I yes. interject something on that? I guess I'm going to twitch here just a little bit for a second. Um, what, what we're talking about is covetousness. Mm -hmm. So a, a, a person with no money in their bank account can, can covet wealth yeah. every bit as much as the very wealthy person yeah. you might could, and maybe even more so. Oh, yes. Times. So, so if, if we think about wealth in terms of all the other gifts God has given to the church, in other words, we all have different treasures and talents and all that, all that is to be used for others' benefit, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever that number is. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it requires us to look at this from the standpoint of, 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 of avoiding covetousness and this idolatry and all these things. And, if we, and, 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 and again, I, mean, I don't want to think about anything, but, it, but if we think that everything we have is, is as a result of Christ, then, then the question isn't how little we give, it's how little do we really need to live on. Mm -hmm. I mean... So I guess I'm, the interjection I'm adding here is, is we don't want to look at it just from the top end looking down at covetousness. Right, right. We want to look at it from the bottom end up as well. Right. 
yeah, I'm not saying you should keep however much you possibly can, just so long as your heart is not making that your treasure. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I don't want you to get that from that at all. I agree with what you're saying there. Um, any other comments on that? Yes, no, maybe? Okay, good. Um, let me look at, I think we better just, I'll read one verse for us before we move on, and then I'm going to skip some. Um, if we look to Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, it says, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Okay? Uh, this is wisdom that cannot be explained by the world. This is completely contrary to what the world tells us, right? And I'd love to say more, but I feel like I better keep moving. Um, but like Lori said, this is a repeating cycle, okay? Um, as he increases us, we should increase what we are giving. This, the buck doesn't stop with us here, okay? Uh, as we saw in verse 8 and verse 10, uh, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He doesn't increase our supply just for us. It's for sowing, right? Okay. So I'm going to try and move on now to chapter 10, which is section 3, or point 3, in your outline. I'm trying to save plenty of time for these last four. Um, this is where we have this abrupt change as we look into these last four chapters. Uh, many of them so far were not really even a change of topic, if just maybe a gradual one. Um, but as we come to this, it's definitely a big radical change. Um, many have said these sections could not go together, or that, they, like I said before, I think that they came from different letters that were just kind of stuck together and trying to make one letter out of them. Um, we have no, no basis for that. And we have no church father, we have no manuscript or anything that is anything other than what you have in front of you, okay? All that we have from history is that 2 Corinthians is as we see it right here today, okay? Um, so that, with that in mind, we wonder why is there such this huge change and difference? Um, there's a few reasons, I think, for that. Um, if you look at the writings of Paul, it's not completely uncommon for him to do quick changes in topics mm -hmm. from one thing to another. Um, that's not completely uncharacteristic of Paul. We think this was probably a pretty stressful time for him. As he mentioned earlier, he's pretty anxious about what was going on and what was how they were responding to the letter. Um, I would love to give you a reason for why he does this about face. Uh, but since Paul does not, I will not. So let's start off and read uh, chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, and verses 7 through 11. If I could get somebody or two somebodies. Chuck, thank you. Um, one and two. One and two and seven through eleven. Okay. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Skipping down to seven. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. 
For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when we're absent, we do in present. <laughs> okay, so to start off with, um, we'll mention of Paul's unimpressive physical appearance with, when with them. He's not making reference here to Paul's to his own physical characteristics, but rather, let's say, his personal or personality characteristics, if you will. A lot of times you'll see a, a book in, or a picture of Paul in the children's ministry and it's this short little bald fat guy. That's not what we're saying here, okay? He's referring basically as if to say he was a pushover or unconvincing or non-confrontational in person, okay? Um, that could aid us a little bit in understanding why the second visit did not end so well and why he went back to Ephesus without a resolution to the conflict. Um, he references this again in chapter 11, verse 6, when he says he is unskilled in speaking. Uh, all this to say, though, in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 2, he says he will confront those if they are still in sin when he returns on his third visit, and he will not spare them. Okay. So in Titus' report in chapter 7, there must have been mention of this group that we've dubbed the Super A's, uh, still causing trouble, or at least could still cause trouble, and that needed to be addressed. So Paul is looking to draw battle lines here and make distinctions between the obedient, repentant ones and those who sided with these super rays. So Lee, can you read uh, chapter 10, verse 12 for us? For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Okay, clear as mud. I had him read in the NASV because I, I like the way it uses themselves over and over and over and over again. The ESV changes a couple of those to try and help you understand it a little more, but I just like the way it comes out in the NASV. Um, so let's break this down a little bit. He starts out by saying, we do not use the same standards or criteria to judge ourselves as do these super A's. Uh, he begins by describing, accusing, and then he names them in the next chapter, uh, 11 verse 4, I believe it is, as the ones who are promoting this false gospel, saying that they are the ones who should be looked at as the authoritative spiritual leaders. Uh, next, they use this false standard to measure themselves which is created by themselves, or their own clique or group, if you will, and they find their conduct to be impeccable. Imagine that. It was according to their own false standards, based on their false behaviors, right? Uh, these are some of the things that they have charged and leveled at Paul of doing the very same things when they're over here doing that with their fake authority. Uh, they accuse Paul of boasting, verse 8, in his own authority, and having no letters to authenticate his apostleship. So since Paul has been accused of boasting and things not true, when in fact they were more true of him than they were of any of these false apostles. So he decides he's going to go on this boasting spree and prove his accuracy and truthfulness in what he had spoken to them. Okay? 
He's not boasting to sing his own praises. We need to say that right at the outset. Or to show how great he is. We'll see as we go along, he despises having to do this. And he calls it foolishness and rebukes them for necessitating that he does it. Okay? Um, so let's, I also want to read Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 for you. Um, if you guys were mentioned a couple weeks ago, Travis in his sermon talked about boasting some as well and what we should boast about and what we should not boast about. Um, we'll do a real quick summary of Jeremiah in verse 17. It says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, That really kind of cuts down on the things you can boast about, right? <laughs> um, I, I would write Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 in your notes. Go back and, and read that. It's really good. I really wanted to read that one. Um, so anyway, this boasting marathon here, it lasts nearly two and a half chapters, okay? And which he speaks of boasting more than 20 times in two and a half chapters. In addition to that, we also have other occurrences of Paul's boasting in chapters 1, verse 12 through 14, chapter 5, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 24, chapter 9, verse 3, chapter 10, and verse 8. So are you sensing a theme here just a little bit? He does a lot of boasting in this book. Why, why do you think that is? Well, he's defending his ministry. Mm -hmm. these, these guys are false teachers. And he's, I'm the real deal. Mm -hmm. And he's got to get that across. Yeah. Yep. Okay, let's go back to Lee. Can you read uh, chapter 11, verse 1 for us? I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. Okay. So he's going to continue on with this tirade and makes, he seems to make an appeal for them to bear with him in for more boasting and foolishness. Um, it seems that this isn't really a request, but that he's just saying it to clarify how unnecessary and ridiculous and foolish this is. Because he basically interrupts himself mid-sentence and says, oh, you are bearing with me, right? Read the last part again. Um, but indeed, you are bearing with me. You are bearing with me. And this fo foolishness he explains of is that the foolishness there, starting in verse 4 of that chapter, is the foolishness from the super rays, or false puzzles. Meaning, you're giving an audience to them. You're listening to their heresy and their false gospel without even a challenge to its validity. Okay? He explains he is not inferior at all to these super rays even if he's not an eloquent speaker. Uh, the next comment, the next point, uh, we'll get to in a minute, but I, I need to explain something first about Greek culture. Um, I know Wes mentioned this a tiny bit last week as well. In Greek culture, a professional speaker or teacher was rated based on the size of the fee he could charge for his speaking or for his services. So the bigger the fee, the more credible or worthy he must be to be listened to and to be believed on, right? Uh, this was regards to the more valuable or truthful their teaching or doctrine was. So let's say if I could charge a fee of $10,000 for speaking, then whatever I'm lecturing about must be really accurate and worth listening to, right? Uh, this isn't completely unlike what we do today when you go to a concert. The more money you pay for that concert, the bigger, more famous name you're expecting to see, right? Um, also believed in that culture was that those who did not charge for their lectures or for their knowledge 
did so because they privately knew their teaching was not worth anything or was not true, okay? So you see where these super A's are just loving that. They're using this as ammunition against Paul, who did not charge anything for his services or for the teaching that he gave them, okay? And we see that in the very next verse, I believe. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? So next he gives his defense and support of himself for not taking the money or support, if you will. Um, as a worker of the gospel, he was entitled to financial support from those he had reached with the gospel. Uh, if we look back to 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15, and even back into the Old Testament, we'll see where God's commanded that those who make their living from the gospel should receive their living. I didn't say that right. Those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. Um, that's why his comment, did I commit a sin by not taking support from you? He says, the reason I refused support from you was so that not because my teaching was worthless, but to separate himself from the super A's, saying to demonstrate his gospel was not about peddling knowledge for profits. Okay? Um, after his defense about the statements, he again continues his boasting and playing the fool, as we'll read chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. I'll read that if you guys want to just follow along with me here. <clears throat> I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you <coughs> accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little, what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. <laughs> but whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking of as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So I am not by any means a dramatic reader, but you can really get into his emotion there and how he just really lets himself go and kind of holds off and lets him have it there. Um, he starts out by saying, this is not what the Lord would say to you. Accept me as a fool in this, right? If you go back to, what was that? Um, oops, I skipped too many pages here. 
I believe it was chapter 11, verse 17. I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Okay? So he's basically saying this is not instruction of the Lord. Take this as what a fool would do in his boasting, even though it's perfectly true of him, right? He's not lying to them in his boasting. This actually happened to him. Um, all right, so this epistle shows us through here and many other places, it shows us more who Paul is and the life of Paul. This is this huge biographical sketch that we have of his life that we don't see anywhere else. And we see some, but not to this extent in any of the other epistles. This really gives us a taste of who Paul is and about his feelings for the churches, not just the Corinthian church. Um, so we'll start off now in 12, read 1 through 6. Do I have a volunteer to read that one really quick? Uh, Gary, and then we'll go to Joe. Okay. I must go on boasting, though. There is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the, to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Next one, too. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Thank you. So as he starts off here, it kind of sounds like he's maybe composed himself a little, brought the volume down a notch or two, although he still gives yet another reminder of, hey, I'm still boasting, and by the way, this is not a good thing to do. And he continues on to speak of a man in third person who has been caught up to heaven and has all these revelations, and we don't find out till verse 7 that he's talking about himself, that he is the man, right? Um, there's a whole lot more we could say about this including what is the third heaven, what were the revelations, and mainly, why do people claim today that they went to heaven and returned to tell us all about it when Paul, a writer of much of the New Testament, was not permitted to tell anything about it? Well, I was really wanting to talk about it and unpack it, but we don't have the time. So let's move on um, to verse 7. Or was it verse 6 where he talks about it? Verse 7. talks about this thorn in the flesh. You guys have all heard about the thorn in the flesh, right? Um, this is mainly the last interpretive issue that we'll talk about. Um, let's see. So we have three main choices of which to take our guesses from as to what his thorn in the flesh was. Uh, one, we have a physical malady. A uh, reoccurring bodily problem that brought repeated physical pain and difficulty. Uh, some have referenced Galatians 4 and Galatians 6 for this. Um, our second choice would be adverse conditions. Uh, that list we just mentioned would more than suffice enough for to be a claim or to be a thorn in the flesh if that's what it was. 
Um, would these qualify as a messenger of Satan? Possibly, if you look at the life of Job and what he was allowed to do in Job's life. Uh, our third choice would be a personal foe of Paul. Uh, we have more options here to consider with this thorn. Uh, number one would be the super A's. Uh, they were clearly a detriment to Paul that was definitely reoccurring. Uh, number two would be continual opponent, such as Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4, or Demetrius the silversmith in Acts 19. Uh, the third choice would be a demon or demon-inflicted person in Corinth. Um, we don't really have adequate proof to say which one it is. Um, if you want to read your MacArthur Study Bible, he gives you what he believes it is. I don't necessarily agree with that. So if you want to read his notes there, you can. Um, we don't really know for sure what it was. I think if God wanted us to know or if Paul thought we needed to know, he would have included it. I think what's more important in that is the reason for it, not necessarily what it was. Uh, if you look down, the reason for it was to keep Paul from becoming proud. And how essential is it for all of us to have something to keep us humble, lest we all become self-sufficient and think more highly of ourselves than we are, right? So now we come to the end of this boasting spree, where he once more reiterates how foolish and unnecessary it should have been for him to go on this lengthy discourse. Uh, verse 12, we, he talks about how he had already proved his apostleship to them and how they should have defended them. Um, that's chapter 12, verse 12, if you're wanting to look at that. So um, we'll finish the letter in chapter 13 with his final warnings and greetings. Uh, we've already mentioned a couple from this chapter, that how he threatened um, that he will not spare them when he returns. Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot about that since we already talked about it. There's one verse we've got to talk about. Go to verse 5. Um, can somebody read that one? This is a big one. 13.5? Yes, yeah, really loud. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, and unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Okay, thank you. So a contradiction was so popular in our culture today, and that says and tells us, so you should pray a prayer and never doubt again, right? Isn't that what we hear? Uh, in complete opposite of that, Paul says, you need to examine yourselves. You need to prove the sincerity of your faith. And an opposite, instead of questioning Paul's apostleship, you should be questioning you, not questioning me. So um, I, there's obviously a lot more we could say about that, but I'm going to keep moving. Uh, he hopes they will see that he has not failed the test. That's the test for not... Let me just read it. He hopes they will see that he has not failed the test for his apostleship, but the test of having to punish them when he arrives because they are no longer in sin. Okay? So he wants to fail the test of not punishing them. You get that? Not the test that he talks about of his, whether or not he is an apostle. Okay? He's not saying, I'm going to hope that you fail that, or hope you'll find that I failed that. No, he's saying, I hope you will find that I failed the test of having to punish you when I come, because there's no reason to punish you when I come, because you've repented, right? Um, his desire is to be weak among them when they are strong in the Lord. 
Their obedience allows him to be weak in demonstrating his authority over them when he comes to visit them. Um, his concerns about the restoration kind of come back in a little bit in his final words and greetings there. Um, I think that's verse 10 of chapter 13. Um, overall, he's tried to instill his hopes and confidence in them, but we can see little drops bleeding in of his doubts here and there, and rightfully so. I think that was well-founded, that he wouldn't have, honestly, in his heart, 100% confidence after everything that's gone on in the history that we've looked at so far. Um, as we've discussed earlier, uh, we believe this letter was a success, including his third visit to them. Since we have no other drama mentioned in Acts, since we have no third Corinthians or fifth Corinthians, whichever one you want to call it, uh, in addition to that, Romans 15.26 says they were pleased to make contributions for the church in Jerusalem, which implies their reconciliation was successful and that his visit was successful when he got there on the third visit. So um, that's all I got because I skipped some, but I hope you'll forgive me for that. <laughs> so, any questions or comments or things you're dying to say? <laughs> Not dying to say, but things you want to say, Travis. Not dying to say it, but um, I, you know the points you made about um, you know the in Greek culture the the super apostles or the or the rhetoricians, the sophists in that day who charged, and the more they charged, the better they must be, and everybody's under that same illusion. And the less a person charges, the more worthless his comments are. If you charge nothing no need to listen to you. That happens today with Christian counseling. And we see it in our church a lot where people come in and um, you know, they're used to paying high dollar for counseling. And if you're not charging anything, they think, it's worth well, what good is this? <laughs> this is just some, um, you know, some folksy wisdom you have to share or something like that. When, when they, what they fail to realize. And, and when I hear the counsel that people receive, from people paying thousands and thousands of dollars, it's ridiculous what they're paying for. Mm -hmm. And then you give them solid things from the Word of God. And the people who are at our church and they hear that, they say, man, this is fantastic. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and you, know, you want to say for those people who walk away from you and don't want counsel, forgive me the wrong of not charging you. you know? mm -hmm. But that's, that's exactly how we feel about it never yeah. going to charge because it's a ministry of the church mm -hmm. but in the world's eyes that's that's despised that's yeah. looked down upon yeah. sadly many many churches have fallen into that same way of thinking that they should charge that they should charge or they should refer out to the experts who charge mm -hmm. and they send their own people out to really the wolves mm -hmm. any other comments Questions? Looks like y'all are ready to go home. We'll just close in prayer. <laughs> Father God, we come tonight uh, grateful for your word and for the things that you um, bring to us through your word and the things that you wanted us to know so that we may love and know and serve you better. Uh, we pray that we would take this information, Lord, and just be more grateful and um, be striving to increase in our knowledge of you so that we may know you and love you more, God. I pray as we go out tonight, 
Uh, but we'd also be able to use this to instruct others and not just uh, have it stay with us or have it fall to the ground, but that we'd remember what we learned and uh, be able to use that as a later time. Uh, I pray that you would use us for your service and your honor and glory the rest of this week and keep us all safe to come back here on Sunday. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.